you got to lead with need, right? There's, you know, qu- cliches are cliches for a reason. And right. one of them is that necessity is the mother of invention. And we hear that in sixth grade and then promptly forget it for the rest of our life. But that's it. The winning startups, the winning corporates, the winning banks, the winning social enterprises, see a need, fill a need. Don't start with shiny bling. Don't start with eyeballs and you know customer acquisition costs, lifetime value metrics, and all these other echoes and shadows. Start with an itch worth scratching. Yep. Then you're going to be cooking with gas. Welcome to the Next Gen Banker podcast, where we explore what's next in banking and talk with the innovators responsible for creating positive change in the financial sector. I am your host, David Ryling, and I am very excited to welcome Mike Bechtel today. Mike, thanks for being on the Next Gen Banker podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, David. It's a treat. Fantastic. So before we get started, just a reminder to our audience to stick around and hear our musical feature at the end of the episode. Each Next Gen Banker episode showcase one new artist from somewhere around the globe representing a wide range of different genres. So be sure to check it out. So today I am excited to have uh, Mike Bechtel with us. And Mike is the chief futurist at Deloitte, one of the largest accounting and professional service firms in the world. Um, He is also a professor at the University of Notre Dame teaching corporate innovation. He's a co-founder and managing partner of Ringleader Ventures, a venture capital firm investing in software startups. And before all that, Mike was the chief technology officer at Start Early, a nonprofit committed to providing quality early childhood experiences in the first five years of life. So, Mike, I got to start out because I love the concept of having the title of a futurist, but where did your interest and curiosity in kind of assuming that role come from? (laughs) Well, you know, I have to tell you, David, that title serves as a very useful barometer because you find that people either lean in or they lean back, cross their arms and say, what's this guy going to be going on about? But, you know, for me, it really came from, it, it really started early in my career. You know, I was a liberal arts guy uh, with, with a creative disposition in college. You know, anthropology, uh, philosophy, you know, government, political science, all th- those sorts of things. But because I graduated into 1998, you know, if you could spell WWW, you were handed a laptop and told, go build the future. And, and so despite my being a consultant for the first 12 years and the last four years of my career, I I always thought of myself as a bit more of a, of a, a creative, a bit more of a pioneer. And so having found my tribe, if you will, in the, in the, the, the emerging technology groups, the research and development groups, the inventors, the, the, the change makers, as opposed to the order takers. I think I realized that I'd been working in all things newfangled for 25 years, and a natural next step was to professionalize that and do it for a living as a as a futurist. So that's fantastic. So I'm one of those that lean into that conversation because I that I feel like that's my tribe. Um, <laughs> and I heard you describe the future one time as as translucent, and that always is kind of like ring the bell in my head. Because a lot of times when I'm looking at strategy and so forth for the bank, I'm like, you know, the direction is clear. The compass is this way. And I can kind of paint some pictures, but it's not a photograph. 
And so when you think of translucent, uh, what does that sound like to you? Yeah, no, for sure, David. You know, when you talk about futures studies, the, the, the first thing people understandably uh, conjure up in their, in their mind's eye is, is the crystal ball, prediction, this, not that. Um, it, Babe Ruth pointing towards where the ball will be. And, 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 and the, the good thing about that is if you get it right, you get undue adulation. Sure. <laughs> <You get it> wrong, <laughs> exactly. You You're a genius, right? Yeah. But if you get it wrong, it's it's a never-ending game of gotcha. And so when we say the future is translucent, what we mean, and you know, get nerd alert, get ready for vocab, vocab barrage, but you skeptics will tell you the future is opaque, right? They'll say, well, you can't know it. Any time on it is folly. We've got we've got problems today. Uh, on the flip side, you've got wide-eyed optimists who say the future is clear. Well, we believe translucent is the right word rather than transparent because what we're saying is you can make out the shapes and shadows, but not the fine details. And how? Well, David, pro tip: futurists are just secretly historians. And so we look back to make sense of where we've been, the journey to current, and then we don't project one future. We don't call one shot. We say evidence suggests it's going to be one of these two or three probable futures. Let's overweight our investments in those directions. Got it. And so is there a combo here? Um, is there science and maybe a little bit of crystal ball art? I mean, you do this long enough, you're like, hey, the data suggests this and the data suggests that, but you know what? The data has suggested that before, but we know it kind of goes sideways, not straight. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely um, models, rubrics, frameworks, science involved. But to your point, some of it is pattern recognition and lived experience. Yeah, you know the best thing is to be a student of history to see where where things have been, so that we can project where they might go. The second best thing is is to you know, not that we need to bring age into is 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 a discriminating characteristic. Yeah, but a little gray hair goes a long way. Right. I'll give you an, I'll give you an example. Breathless excitement over the last three months about the metaverse. Oh, well, yes, of course. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're a digital native born into the mobile web and suddenly the world is going beyond this glowing 16 by nine rectangle, yep. it feels like a revolution, uh, a step change of, of not just degree, but of kind. Well, for those of us who are as much geezer as geek, you know, I, we've seen this movie before I hear the clumsy exposition around the metaverse. And I think back to 1996, right? When folks were saying, well, why, why would an accountancy need one of these interweb sites? Right. And, and so to your point, I think a little bit of lived experience goes a long way in, in tempering the models and the science with some, with some instinct. Yeah, it was funny. I was having a conversation with my daughter who like, you know, all things are Reddit and YouTube and whatever else. And, yeah. and you know, I listen to this podcast, therefore I'm a professional. And uh, <laughs> and she's a super smart <laughs> uh, woman. Um, but I was explaining to her, you know, there's data and then there's information and then there's knowledge. But then there's wisdom, which 
is uh, the future. It is time irrelevant. And so I was trying to give her some perspective of, you know, you're learning a lot of things, but you just don't know it all yet, even though you're very bright and very smart. And so it, it's that perspective. For sure. Um, now, if I was in your class at the University of Notre Dame, what what would I expect? What are the themes what I would be thinking about when I'm I'm talking about corporate innovation? <laughs> I'm just absolutely curious about this and would love to yeah. attend. Yeah, no, I'll I'll tell you. Um the 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 low-hanging fruit, the 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 joke I'll make about myself is that you know, corporate innovation is an oxymoron, you know, like jumbo shrimp. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but but here's here's the the straight scoop on that one. Our university, my my alma mater. Um, you know, you know, the old joke, how, how do you know somebody went to Notre Dame? They'll tell you in the first 10 minutes, uh -huh. but yeah, but we have a graduate program we call esteem and it's a play on words. It's a mashup of E for entrepreneurship. And then the, the STEM in esteem is STEM, right? Yep. And so what's that mean? Well, in plain English, we teach, uh, young adults. It's a graduate program who who generally, well, not just young adults, all adults, who, who are looking to infuse a little entrepreneurial mojo into their STEM undergraduate base. So, you know, I, I use geek as a word to be celebrated. Absolutely. So we're, we're, we're turbocharging geeks with a little bit of entrepreneurial savvy, right? Love it. Yeah. Well, what we learned, David, was as much sound and fury is spent teaching the rules of the road around entrepreneurship, around startups, around uh, grassroots uh, business founding, there's a whole world of innovators working in large established organizations. Yeah. That, that feel that feel like they can lean on some of the tropes of Silicon yep. Valley, but not all of them. Sure. Right. It, as, as one of my headlines in that class is disruptive innovation, move fast and break things. Yeah. doesn't work in a hundred year old firm that's paying your salary, right? You need to approach that constructively, right? Yeah. With respect for the best practices that got us to current and the pioneering spirit to explore whether or not there might be better ones. And so a lot of that class, what, what do you learn? You learn how to, you learn how to pull the organization forward without disrespecting it or breaking the cash cow in the process. Exactly. Beautiful. And that is such a lovely and fine line. I call them the the entrepreneurs of, of our company because they're always looking to that continuous improvement and so forth. And some of them are very bold and forward with it. We got to do this. And others are, you know, if we tried it this way and they totally <laughs> set you up for the sale and you're like, well, why wouldn't we do that? Um, so, yes, it. there there is quite a bit of art there. Yeah. Um now, I got to just go back to one thing that you triggered in my head because it, it came off another uh, interview that I think was on YouTube of you. And I think I've used it three times now in the past 48 hours. <laughs> and that is you had a, uh, the definitions between um, invention and innovation. And to me, that just lit my brain up and I'm like, oh my gosh, that is what I've been trying to describe to people for so long. So <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to hand that one over on a dish because I want to see if I'm, I interpreted it correctly. <laughs> yeah. I am grateful I, with, with sincerity, man. I am grateful for the time you spent, uh, you know, pr preparing and, and thinking about our talk because I, I, uh, 
it, it, it means the world. And I think it's a great reflection on your, your passion for the space. Oh, I'm just a student in this journey. Hey, uh, well, <laughs> I got a graduate degree. It's from the school of hard knocks more than anything else. <laughs> well, the, so, so here, if it's the definition, I think you're talking about, okay. I, there's a great story behind this. And, oh. and that is 15 years ago, I was asked to serve as my, my former firm's, uh, first uh, global innovation director and with the with the insecurity and youth that comes with having a title like that at the ripe old age of 30 i did what any self-respecting motor mouth would do and created about a 30 page definition for innovation because clearly it couldn't be simple you know it right. it, it it needed to be you know appendices until the cows come home, right? Well, what I learned over the ensuing years was that um, the best definitions, the best frames are always simple. doesn't mean they're simplistic. It means they're clear. And the story is I'm looking online for simple, pithy descriptions, and I see on Wikipedia, and it's no longer there, right? Okay. And, you know, high school teachers everywhere are doing the Kermit the Frog wrinkle face like that's not a reputable source. Well, it's useful. Right. And I saw an IP address from Cincinnati, Ohio. I'll never knew who the genius was who wrote this, but they said. Invention is the conversion of money into new ideas. Innovation is the conversion of new ideas into money. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, isn't that it? Because the yeah. lab coat crowd obsesses over novelty. Look at this new thing I made. Can I get a grant for it? <laughs> right. The entrepreneur crowd says, look at this new way to create value for others, financial, social, or beyond. Right. Awesome. And it's so applicable in my world when it comes to, uh, and a lot of times, we run into technology and we run into people with new ideas. And again, what they're building this thing and people are going to come. And if I could just get the funding for it and, and build it a little bit more and I'll build it a little bit more and they keep building and building, um, they're inventing this thing. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to, I, I look at someone in the innovative world and they're like, I have this big juicy problem and it's been weighing me down, but I finally got to the point where I felt confident enough to come up with the solutions that take the problem apart. And I figured it out and I'm now in the clarity zone. I'm like, yeah, baby, this is what we got. We're going. I'll, I'll tell you what, David, one of the number one things that I've learned in my own hard knock journey through innovation land is that too often, even innovators, they start with the hammer and then go searching for nails and yeah. the, the time honored, the time honored, you know, approach, the time honored best practice to use a, a nerd word, you got to lead with need, right? There's, you know, cliches are cliches for a reason. And right. one of them is that necessity is the mother of invention. And we hear that in sixth grade and then promptly forget it for the rest of our life. But that's it. The winning startups, the winning corporates, the winning banks, the winning social enterprises, see a need, fill a need. Don't start with shiny bling 
don't start with eyeballs and you know, customer acquisition costs to lifetime value metrics and all these other echoes and shadows start with an itch worth scratching. Yep. Then you're going to be cooking with gas. Absolutely. So I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a turn on you here. We'll go to financial services. And so now banking, uh, financial services in general, banking, especially it's being disrupted by small tech and big tech alike by the minute. I used to say by the day, but that's not even accurate anymore. And I would say a lot of banks are in, in a position like we are, and we're focused on our nuts and bolts. We got to do a core migration. We got to go to the cloud. We got to do some data stuff. Um, and there's a lot of data stuff to do. And it's all in a quest of, I got to lower my cost of tech now because I got to invest in new tech but quite frankly, I still have to drive the car while I'm changing the wheels. Yeah. And it ain't all that easy. What do you see next? Uh, while I'm, well, we're busy doing that. Someone's got to look out the windshield and say, you know, don't crash into this or don't go the wrong way. Yeah. What do you see as next on that technology frontier? So I'll tell you, you, you I love your characterization and I, I might borrow that several times in the next 48 hours <laughs> around, around the, the car. Cause, cause you're right. You're, you're racing at 200 miles an hour and you got to do the gas, no pit stops, right? No, no pit stops. stops. No pit stops. <laughs> the, the way we encourage our clients to think about it. And, and I think the way that, that I've seen work at organizations, small, medium and jumbo is you want to allocate you want to hard circle some percentage of your budgets and your time and your team to wake up in the morning thinking about the implementation of the new and the exploration of the next. The key is you don't drop what you're doing. You don't give up on your you know, rusty but trusty core you keep the majority and by majority i'm talking 75 85% of your budget and your mind share is on nurturing the now but the key is you know there's that old quote what strat you know operations eat strategy for breakfast they both eat innovation for lunch right i, I saw another quote best way to make sure something doesn't happen is to make it everybody's part time job right? right and so by 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 forcing yourself the accountability of hard circling some people, some dollars around the exploration of what's new, you know, yet another trope, the electric light didn't come from the continuous improvement of candles. Right. right? And so as long as you have the tungsten filament crowd, you're you, you, the bird dogging the future. That's the first step. Now right. you asked what's common. The, the, the way, the way we look at it, honestly, we don't look at it as a, as a, as, as a blizzard of a la carte unrelated buzzwords. Too often, I think technologists, uh, you know, they, 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 you know, put, put, put up the sparkle fingers as my old uh, business partner used to say, <laughs> and hit you with 650 buzzwords and worse. There's another 650 behind those. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally. have heard those before. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, absolutely. The, the, in truth, our research suggests that the whole honking history of IT, and when I say history, I mean back to the 1840s, it's really been a, a pretty linear evolution along three train tracks. Okay. 
they are, and, and for the nerds and wizards in your audience, and again, that's a compliment for me. That, <laughs> that is my tribe as well. <laughs> yeah. The, it's, it's the user interface, right? The UI, UX, the interaction, how we interact with machines. Yeah. There's the information layer, right? What we do with that, as you said, that knowledge, that information uh, come wisdom, right? And then underneath it all, the computation, how we, how we crunch numbers. And for the last five-ish years, the story on, on those three have been about mobility and, you know, touch and swipe mobile digital experiences on interaction. It's been about analytics and data science uh, coming into AI on information. It's been about, well, it's been about the cloud on right. computation. Sure. What's next? Finally, only took me 17 minutes. But what's <laughs> next on all three? It's, well, on interaction, David, it's getting beyond the glass. It's this recognition, man, that these this ever-shrinking series of rectangles that we've been staring at and that my kids have been lost in for the last, you know, 10 years. Yep. The one thing we know is they ain't going to get smaller. You're not getting smaller than a smartwatch. Right. And so... What's really next on the interaction front is beyond the glass. It's conversational voice. A couple of years ago, we thought smart speakers would be a fad. Tell that to my 12-year-old who sees that as the most natural and simple computing interface. Absolutely. Yep. Right? On the information front, what's next is emotional, charismatic, even creative AI. And I'll tell you, yeah, it, and it's, it, here's the thing, David, AI, this fellow Larry Tesler from Xerox Park, okay, he invented uh, um, copy-paste, which oh, I, sure. it, I think that's a low-key candidate for the most useful thing ever. But, <laughs> totally. I mean, you know, dark horse. Yeah. But he had the best definition of AI I ever saw. He said, AI is whatever the heck computers can't do yet. And so in 1996, that meant beating Kasparov in chess. Right. You know, in 2006, it's beaten Ken Jennings in Jeopardy. In 2017, it's beaten Lee Sedol in Go. The thing is this, and here, here's the punchline here. On, uh, we doubt every time AI threatens to do something uniquely human, we doubt that it'll happen. Never happen. And then right. when it does, it's interesting. The next morning, we shrug it off. It's not really AI. Right. <laughs> it's because we have this pride of place as people. We want to create amazing things, but not greater than us. If we can get over ourselves, yep. I'll tell you, we can more readily accept that AI can detect and emulate human emotion because it's another form of data. Right. And we're seeing it at our clients' call centers, right? These robots don't mean, need to be more charming than a Hollywood actor. They need to more, be more charming than your lowest performing rep. Gotcha. And so, you know, the final piece landing the plane is what, what's new on, on compute. It's all this blockchain stuff, man. Right. And, and blockchain had such an image problem 10 years ago, dark actors on the dark web. Right. But, but what we're finding is this emerging belief that none of us maybe is as trustworthy as all of us. Right. And so what is decentralized computing, if not the democratization of trust and, and the recognition that no one counterparty should hold all the eggs in our baskets. Right. 
That doesn't speak very well for intermediaries like a bank. <laughs> no. But but you're right. The well, I would agree yeah, with agree. you. The the trust and the zero trust model are um uh I mean we talk about it all the time. We have a zero trust model, so therefore we can function essentially in terms of authentication. Um oh, it's true. And, yeah. and 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 another thing though that I think that that you have with Sunrise, and and I don't I don't intend to uh, butter you up nor preach to the choir yeah. or the converted, but but I think it puts it puts your mission, your your B Corp status, your in it, you know, in it for a broader set of reasons to the fore, because regardless of where the trust discussion goes or the technical discussion goes, we're seeing as futurists this trend towards people affiliating with expressions of their value systems. And sure. so regardless of how central or decentralized banking becomes, um, you have other levers to sort of attract and retain a community that cares. Right. No, thank you for that. And that is uh, that is the hope. Let me uh, just take off on that real quick because in a lot of the AI conversations that I have, uh, I seem to be in the minority because they're like, AI can get, AI needs grandparents. It's being weaponized. It's doing all this. And I'm like, you know, I think AI could be used for some good. Like we could discover people that don't have access or we could think of underwriting in a different way or risk in a different way. Or we could, we could start to take in different forms of data and patterns that we can't even comprehend and, and begin to open up this magical thing called, you know, financial services and the, and the fear that's around money. And um, my question is, is there a force for good here? Is there AI for good? There is absolutely AI for good. David, I love this. I love this, um, this question in this space because in my experience, media whether it be creative media or or journalistic, yeah. it, it follows this this age old trope of if if it bleeds it leads, and so in a world where we 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 quest for eyeballs and outrage sells, we tend to get the dark mirror, right, on just about everything. Well, AI. We know that the naive state is that AI makes existing processes faster, it automates, it accelerates. And as my colleague and our CTO at, at Deloitte, Bill, likes to say, you know, good does not come from making bad things faster. Uh, well, right. <laughs> well, here's, but here's the scoop. Therefore, in emerging AI ethics, um, sort of uh, point of view, uh, way of thinking has emerged, which is out to ensure that we do no harm a sort of Hippocratic oath of IT, teach your digital children well. I love the way you said it, AI needs grandparents. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, I think we can do one step better. And I think you're foreshadowing that, David. Namely, imagine a world where the use of AI doubles as a hygiene function. It forces organizations to say, what are the tacit values, social, ethical, moral beliefs that we know we feel, but we haven't yet made explicit, that we haven't yet articulated, that we haven't made legible. Let's surface those 
in a way that's machine readable and therefore AI trainable. And then to your point, let's, let's build and train systems that embody who we wish to be, not who we've behaved as for the last 50 or 500 years. And, and, and I think that's doing one better than doing no harm. I, I think that is to your excellent yeah. language. That's AI ML for good. Oh, that is fantastic. I, I could never describe it in that articulate way. The thing that the vision that's in my head, if I interpret what you just said is, gosh, if we had all the data we ne needed for a consumer, let's say, to understand a purchase, and I'll take, I'll go down the climate uh, or the um, greenhouse gas world. If they knew, if I purchased this product versus that product, this one's carbon footprint is X and this is X minus. Well, I might go with the X minus because that's my value driven and I start to change, it starts to change my behavior, but it does it in real time when I'm in the grocery store or I'm purchasing something and all of a sudden, who I used to be, I used to purchase this brand, now I purchase this other brand because of where my values are. So that's, the AI is working for me to change my behavior, but I wouldn't have known that otherwise. That's exactly it. That it's exactly it. It's, you know, we use this term as, as entrepreneurs, as, as leaders, uh, this term externalities. Right. This idea that there's the things in our sphere, scope of control, and then there's the other stuff. Well, right. imagine, imagine that thinking applied to data, right? Traditionally, AI and ML is trained on what? Business data. What kind of business data would we typically have? Financial data. Okay, we can train a mechanical mind to optimize financial outcomes. Sure. Not so fast, my friend. What we're, what we're suggesting, what we're concocting together is a future wherein by exposing these same algorithms to our social values, right. to our moral, aspirational, ethical uh, values, we can optimize across the, the whole enchilada Yep. And and seek to optimize externalities uh, because there's no such thing. Right. Wow. Cool. So, Mike, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you down here to the the final question, and it's the next gen banker question. So, you know, as you look out into your into that future, knowing what you know of the past, what does the next generation of banker look like? It's a fun one because it, it, it is as a, as a breadth guy, I, 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 I treat, I, you know, I look at opportunities to jump into any given sector as, as a, <laughs> as a treat, you know, right. it's, it's, it's a chance to, uh, it's a, it's, it's a chance to feign sector specific, uh, guru-ness, but here's what I'd say, David, back to lead with need. Okay. It might feel a bit cliched, but I think the banker of the future if it's going to be like everything else of the future that we're seeing in our research, the banker of the future leads with need. And leading with need is increasingly a data-driven understanding of not just who is your customer and where is, for example, in, in your sector, what, what is their net worth, their free cash flow, et cetera, but where have they been? Where are they at? Where do they aspire to be? And so I think the, the next-gen banker has a data-driven understanding of every single customer's past, present, future trajectory as modeled in data so that you can offer 
and I'm going to purposely use video game language here, but it feels okay. right. You can <laughs> offer unlocks and achievements and shortcuts to these customers' preferred tomorrows. And you'll notice nowhere in there is, are there notions of interest rates or loans or you know anything. Yeah. It's we're here to help you get to your preferred tomorrow a little ahead of schedule. Right. The way you happen to do it is through financial systems and engineering. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, we spend so much time, particularly as bankers, if we could just lower the rate. If it's, all, it's usually all about us as opposed to, you know, I know they want a car loan, but they really don't want a car loan. They, they want a car. Right. <laughs> you know, they're right. trying to achieve that and we're all tied up in our own heads. Right. Oh, my gosh. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today on The Next Gen Banker. I appreciate your insights and, and all your, gosh, your creativity that you bring to this space. It is really fantastic. Uh, I wish you all the best, and I hope our paths uh, run across each other again. David, it's, it's been absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. For this episode's musical feature, we're showcasing Phil Madeira. Phil is a singer-songwriter who's worked with the likes of Alison Krauss, Garth Brooks, Keb Moe, and Emmylou Harris. His latest album, Bliss, comes out this month. Here is Wicked Job from his 2018 album, Providence. I hit rock bottom, so I took a job. A little detour from the will of God. My eyes off the vision. So I buried my dream Beneath the murky bottom Of a stagnant stream Working the day shift At the end and hope Dreamer's graveyard On the dead end Was Wicked Job by Phil Madeira. You can hear more of Phil's music on Spotify and at philmadeira.net. If you would like your music featured on the Next Gen Banker podcast, email david at nextgen-banker.com with a link to your music and website. Thanks for listening to the Next Gen Banker podcast. We'll see you around next time.